You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, today we're starting a new teaching series on the parables of Jesus. And uh, the title of this series is Parables how Jesus used fiction to speak truth. Parables are in general just a great thing to teach on <laughs> because stories are, you know, we all, who doesn't love stories, right? And uh, to, uh, to speak on stories, to teach on stories is really cool in, in my experience. Uh, and you, the other cool thing about parables is that like all stories, they often have various meanings and various interpretations. We've all heard that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Well, in some ways, stories are as well. And this raises an important question. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus preached often in stories, allegories, and metaphors? There are approximately 30 parables in the Gospels. I say approximately because some of them may be better classified as similes. For example, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, it's the smallest of all the seeds, but once it's planted in the ground, it grows up into a mighty tree that all the birds of the air can nest in, right? It's more of a simile than a story. But it counts. And again, I think we should ask, why would Jesus couch his most important ideas and teachings in such a cryptic medium as story? as these kind of fictitious tales, you know, parables. Why put it all in stories? Why not just say what he really means and give us a list of, of facts and rules to follow, right? I'm arguing that we shouldn't see Jesus' parables as just illustrations and rhetorical devices he used for pedagogical reasons, like you know, object lessons just to get his point across. Rather, the parables themselves in their symbolic structure, communicate something important, I think, about the way that Jesus understood faith and spirituality itself. I believe it's like the philosopher uh, Marshall McLuhan once said, I'm sure you've heard this axiom before, the medium is the message. Have you heard that before? The famous axiom. The medium, in other words, the, the way things are communicated to us, the, the package they come in, is itself a message, and perhaps a more important message than whatever else is being communicated. The question is, what's the message behind the medium of parables in the Gospels? I think the message has to do with the power of story, the, the power of metaphor and, and symbols to reveal the deepest spiritual truths about life, what it means to be human, or who or what is God, ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it. I think the message behind the use of parables is also that we are invited into a dialogue about all of these things. We are invited on a journey of discovery where the answers to these ultimate questions are not clearly given. And we have, we have to think, we have to wrestle with and, and discuss these matters with each other. How cool is that? 
If the deepest truths about what it means to be human, if, if the deepest truths about God, if the deepest truths about what it means to live and to love well are hidden in metaphors and symbols and stories, then maybe there isn't just one set of right answers about these, these things, these ultimate things. I like that. I think that's exciting. And that's what I think the message of the medium is regarding parables. With that in mind, let's look at our first parable today. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10. Let's read it now. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? I love how Jesus always answered questions with questions, right? The lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of thieves who stripped him beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more is owed. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Now this parable is well known throughout our culture, right? I would dare say if you've never darkened the door of a church before, you've heard of this story before, you've heard this parable. We even have Good Samaritan laws in our society, right? We all know what a Good Samaritan is, this idea of a benevolent stranger who comes along and helps someone who's in need, right? We all get that. So this parable is one we already come to with a basic understanding of its message about caring for needy strangers in our midst. But that is a very superficial understanding of this parable, I think. In fact, I would go as far to say that that's not the main point of this parable, to help needy strangers. Yes, that's a good point. And that's part of it. But remember what prompted this story. A man, a lawyer, we're told. Now, keep in mind, this is not like a lawyer in our day and time. This man was an expert in the Mosaic law, the Hebrew religious law. He was not like a civil lawyer, like an attorney today, um, representing people in court. Um, he was an expert in the Mosaic Law, part of the Jewish religious establishment. 
So this lawyer asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who am I obligated to help? It's a loaded question because it implies that maybe not everybody is my neighbor. <laughs> right? It's a loaded question. Who's my neighbor? In picking up on the loaded nature of this question, Jesus, of course, promptly tells him this parable. And the point Jesus is making in this parable is not just, not just to see needy strangers on the side of the road as our neighbors, but that Samaritans are, in fact, our neighbor too. And this was a much more provocative idea to this lawyer and the surrounding Jew Jewish community that's listening to this parable, this idea that Samaritans are our neighbor. You see, Jews and Samaritans hated each other back then. To Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. There were only bad Samaritans. This is highlighted in the previous chapter here in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus and his disciples were shown no hospitality when they were traveling through a Samaritan town. They were not offered any food or drink. Jesus' disciples, in a moment of anger, said to Jesus, shall we call down fire from heaven on this village? Overreaction if there ever was one. They didn't show us hospitality. Let's ask God to incinerate them. Jesus, of course, says no. Let's not do that. <laughs> um, but this elucidates, this reveals the innate religious and racial disparities between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans weren't just seen as outcasts. They were seen as real enemies. And to understand why, we've got to understand a little bit of history. Samaritans are from a region that sits nestled between um, Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, and between is Samaria. And Samaritans and Jews share a common ancestry. They split into two distinct religious and ethnic groups probably about 600 years before Christ. And it's believed, it's complicated, but it's believed that the, that the Hebrew tribes living in Samaria at that time, for one reason or another, blended and merged with their non-Jewish pagan neighbors, the Gentile ethnic groups living in that same region. Thus, a syncretized version of Judaism developed, complete with slightly different, or perhaps significantly different scriptures, beliefs, traditions, and rituals. The Samaritans came to believe that they were practicing the true version of this Abrahamic religion called Judaism, and that their, Jew, their fellow you know, Jewish neighbors in Judea were not practicing the, the pure religion of Abraham. And likewise, Jews living in Judea believed they were practicing the pure ver version of this religion, and the Samaritans a bastardized heretical version. I mean, this is a timeless disparity, right? It's like the battles between Catholics and Protestants, or the Eastern Orthodox versus the Catholic, etc. Right? Or Baptist versus the Methodist. <laughs> yeah. All these arguments, right? We have the correct version of Christianity. You don't, right? But between Jews and Samaritans, because, you know, both communities viewed themselves as being the pure practitioners, they, they viewed the other community, or they, they didn't want to have anything to do with the other community, believing they were both religiously and racially unclean. This was the backdrop to the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And remember, Jesus is sharing this parable with a Jewish audience, and yet he makes the Samaritan the protagonist of the story, the good guy, and makes the Levite and the priests, members of the Jerusalem religious authority, the antagonist, the bad guy. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Isn't it obvious? His point was that the Samaritan is your neighbor, not just some random guy you find dying on the side of the road. Jesus was saying that this, this people group whom you've ostracized and demonized for centuries because of their religious and racial differences is in fact your equal, your neighbor, and deserves to be treated as such. This is, this is the radical, subversive nature of this parable that we often don't hear about. The real point of this parable, it seems to me, was to suggest that not only is a Samaritan your neighbor, but maybe a Samaritan can be even more godly than a Jew. Maybe Samaritans are not only not heretics, but closer to God than you are. Maybe Samaritans are getting into the kingdom, and you're not. Jesus was saying to his fellow Jewish audience, maybe God doesn't care about your religious differences, your arguments about who has the right scriptures, who's got the right theology, whose traditions and temple are the right ones. Maybe God cares more about who actually loves their fellow man and cares for the so-called least of these. Maybe that's what God really cares about, Jesus is saying. Now, the closest analogy I think we can make to this parable today, where if we took this parable and changed it to being the parable of the good Muslim, it's as if Jesus is suggesting that a Muslim can be more godly than a Christian and exhibit the love of Christ better than us. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable to a Jewish man who wants to know how he can obtain eternal life. Jesus' answer is that you must become like a Samaritan, the one you think is a heretic, an ungodly. You've got to become like him. You must become like the Muslim, the heretic, or the atheist who actually does the will of God and loves their neighbor as themselves and cares for the vulnerable and the so-called least of these. So perhaps we should rename this parable the parable of the saved heretic, or the parable of the true believer. Because let's be clear, the true believer was not the Levite or the priest. The true believer was not the, the clergyman that showed up on the scene and just walked by. But the true believer was the Samaritan. The Samaritan is a symbol of true belief and true religion. The Levite and the priest were therefore a symbol of unbelief and false religion. For many of Jesus' contemporaries, including this lawyer he's telling this parable to, religion was the structure of rituals and practices you participated in. Religion was the temple in Jerusalem and the, and the rituals and traditions and practices that you engaged in there. Religion was the prayers you prayed, the, the feasts you observed, the temple sacrifices you made, the rituals and customs you kept. In a similar way today, most people in the church would probably define religion as the spiritual community you belong to, the beliefs you hold about God. 
the traditions and the liturgy you observe or your church observes. But Jesus is saying here that no, true religion is how you live in relationship to each other. And there is a religion hidden within your religion. There's a deeper religion, a truer religion hidden within your religion, so to speak. And that true religion is this hidden religion of love and justice. This wasn't actually Jesus' idea originally, this idea that there's a religion hidden within your religion that God is really interested in. Jesus is just taking his cues from the Old Testament prophets like Amos and Joel and Micah and Isaiah, who all say that what the Lord desires is not really sacrifice and ritual, but love and justice and food for the hungry and liberation for the oppressed. Jesus was much more in line with that prophetic tradition than anything else. In this way, one could argue that Jesus' true religion was not really Judaism or Christianity, but his true religion was love and justice and mercy and compassion, liberation and care for the so-called least of these. And other Christians picked up on this in the first century, like James, who famously wrote in his epistle, pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the widow and the orphan, period. Mic drop. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the widow and the orphan. In other words, to practice love and justice for the so-called least of these, the vulnerable, the broken, the outcast, the afflicted, the oppressed, etc., who in that day and time were often widows and orphans. In other words, pure and undefiled religion is not traditions and rituals and beliefs, but love, pure love and justice for the so-called least of these. This to me, this to me is the radical and subversive meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which could really be renamed the parable of the hidden religion or the parable of the true believer or the parable of the saved heretic. Take your pick. Those are all good titles, I think. Let's transition now into receiving the Lord's Supper together. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he blessed it and said, take, drink, this is my blood. This is the new covenant. Here at Central, we partake in this weekly and we do so by serving each other. This is what we, mean it, we believe it means to be the body of Christ. We bring Christ to each other. We are to be Christ to each other. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pass these out and you just take one of the gluten-free crackers. If you're new here, you just take one of the gluten-free crackers and you dip it in the grape juice. You receive it and then you serve the person next to you. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion.
right, so for those of you who are new here, every week at Central, we conclude our time together with a little discussion. There's usually a discussion. It's usually not just dead air at the end. <laughs> um, in the past, I called this a Q&A, but it's rarely ever questioning and answers. It's often comments and discussion. And so we welcome it all. Um, so I want to invite you at this time, if you have any questions or comments about the parable of the Good Samaritan, parables in general, what is true religion, what isn't, what is true belief, what's not, any, anything goes, you're welcome to uh, engage. And if you're joining us um, via Zoom, you can always unmute and just and raise your voice that way. But uh, yeah, um, and by the way, this is all part of the podcast. So whatever you say, I'll hand you a mic and it will be recorded and passed on to posterity and the internal internet. <laughs> but yeah, anybody this morning have anything they want to say or have a question? Yeah, Akila. Thank you. Um, I'm very passionate about storytelling. <laughs> um, so I think this is interesting. I think one of the other things that um, using the parables does is it's a form of storytelling, and storytelling is a way to build empathy. And the way it builds empathy is that we can imagine ourselves as the characters in the story. So listen to the parable. You can imagine yourself as the person who got robbed, as the priest who walked by, as the you know, so um, so I think that's also why they're so important and why they have so much impact. And um, I was just talking to a colleague about this because this is the work we do, like at my job, and um, having a student say, "Oh, I I didn't think I could relate to people of color until I read these books, and then I realized the emotions were the same." and now I can, right? Like, so it's that thing, and it's easy to be like, well, of course you can, but it's like, no, but that's literally not how our society is set up to have us think. And I think that, um, you know, this idea of stop woke, as you know, I have family in Florida, but it's going on everywhere. It's like, that's the real issues. You can't have compassion for these people who we tell you are different from you. Because if you do, then we get protests and we get the things that were happening after George Floyd was mur murdered. Um, and that's what really freaks out all these lawmakers. It's not, it's not that, you know, you could think of it like that you actually gain, em gain empathy and compassion for people who you think are different. Anyway, that's my little, I could go on, but I'll stop. No, wow, thanks for those comments. And I love how you talked about, well, I loved how, I loved everything you said, but I love how you talked about how story creates empathy. Um, and I love how you tied that into, you know, what we're hearing today, especially from the right, this kind of anti-woke um, agenda to stop storytelling, you know? Um, and, a, and a lot of the resistance to critical race theory that I'm seeing is basically let's stop telling the stories of the past. Let's stop hearing their stories because if we do so, it has that, you know, potential to break things down, cause protests, cause change. Stories cause change. No, I think it's powerful. But, and that, I think, speaks to the real power of story, hearing other people's stories, especially those who are different than us. It, it deconstructs and reconstructs us, society, institutions. No, you're absolutely right. 
Thank you for that. Um, there's so much more we could say about that. Um, but yeah, somebody else, comments, questions, remarks. Um, yeah, Emily, and then Marsha. Uh, mine's not really a question. It's more of a comment. Um, I, I went this past week with my parents to see the um, Auschwitz exhibit that's currently at the Ronald Reagan Library. And um, I would just really recommend you try to go and get, get tickets for it. Um, it was so moving in a way that um, I feel like I'm a little bit of like a World War II like history buff. Like I've watched all the movies and documentaries and books and you know whatnot. I took a really amazing class in college about history of World War II and I heard stories and learned things that I've never heard before. And the way that they put it together around the stories was just so, so moving. Um, there are 50 audio stations. It takes about two and a half hours to like thoroughly go through it. Even if you kind of like have to rush through it, do not miss the last one. It was one of the most moving things that I've ever seen in my life. Um, so just along with this, and it, that was the whole point is um, with all the pictures and the documentation and whatnot that we have, that there are still people that can try to deny that the Holocaust happened is just mind boggling to me. Um, but it just goes to show how important those stories were. And that was actually one of the points that they made in this exhibit was that there's literally not one person that can, you know, like usually when we have like mass massacres, there's someone that can step forward and say, that escaped it and that could say like, this is what happened, this is what it was like and can tell the story. And that was actually one of their points is that there's not a person that escaped the gas chambers of Auschwitz that can actually bear witness to what happened, that it's really only anecdotal and based on what we think happened and what we, you know, that so much of it was, de evidence was destroyed and that we're trying to put it together. And they were actually saying that like, as time goes on, I mean, I was thinking about how I'm the first, my children will be the first generation that won't be able to directly talk to someone that went through the Holocaust. That I actually, you know, as a student was able to hear firsthand accounts of people that were in concentration camps. I saw people with the numbers on their arms tattooed and that this next generation is the first generation that won't get to experience that and how important it is, um, you know, because we're in danger of this happening again. As we, you know, it was just, it really struck in me as I was reading some of the things um, how slowly it kind of started and then how quickly things picked up and that it's not that distant of a past that it couldn't happen again. And so, yeah, I just really recommend going to check that exhibit out if you can. Yeah, and then Marsha. It's hard to follow those two people. <laughs> because the, the questions or the issues they raise are very deep and powerful. I had a very different uh, request uh, to think about. Um, I had been, I don't know where I stand today, but I had been turned off by individuals who said they were very religious because they followed the rituals or the customs associated with religion. Can you? 
with what the parable said talked to about do the rituals reveal and help people learn the lesson of love because I didn't always see the correlation and I did not feel that there was a correlation that's a really good question and one that I wrestle with myself Marcia and I'd love to hear what anybody else thinks as well I'll give you my best answer I think the structure of religion in the sense of ritual and practice can be innately meaningful for a lot of reasons, okay? Um, and I want to be very clear that when I uh, critiqued uh, that particular understanding of religion today, I want to be very clear that um, I, I'm not be trying to be heavy-handed in that. I'm not saying that, oh, rituals and traditions are meaningless, it's just, let's just be people of love. Um, I want to be very clear about that, but to answer your question, I think that having structure, having um, ritual practices, having scriptures, things like that, having times where we pray together, um, do liturgy together, this can all be community building and something that I think brings us into deeper contact with, I, I think, what it means to be human. And that innately, I believe, helps us live and love better and live and love more fully and affirm life in in awe and wonder. I, for me, the best religious practices are always an attempt to speak of what can't be actually spoken of and to bring us in contact with that which fills us with a sense of reverence and awe. And then we see that, that, that spirit, that, that the ineffable, the unspeakable in others around us. And I think that innately infuses life with meaning and makes us love others more and love life more. And I think, so whether you're Christian, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, Jewish, pagan, whatever, whatever your spiritual practice is, if it's not bringing you into contact with that depth dimension of life, that, that mystery, that wonder, that awe, and, and helping you love life and love others more, then the ritual and the practice isn't really working for you. But, you know, I think of religion like a language. You know, I'm speaking English right now. And English is a great language, but it's not better than Japanese. It's not better than you name whatever language. But we have to have language in order to communicate, in order to talk about these, these wonderful ideas, in order to, to, to really live in the world, in order to love. We have to have language. Religion is like a language. And, and it helps us, it gives structure to our lives, gives structure to our world, and helps us engage with this topic of how do we really live and love well? What does it mean to be human? Religion becomes a language of the soul. It's kind of an art. We need art. Who, who, who would ever say we don't need music in order, you know, or we don't need artists? We don't need stories. We just need to love. No, we need structure in order to come into contact with these ideas and to wrestle with them and, and to experience them and to build community around them. So that's how I look at religion. That's, that's my view on it, though. You don't have to agree with me. Um, that should be painted on the wall behind me. You don't have to agree with me. Um, does anybody else want to react to that? What, what, you know, how does religion help with this? Yeah, Jen. As someone who came from, you know, super, uh, like, let's jump up and down and praise Jesus, you know, upbringing, uh, speaking tongues, um, I find personally find a lot of really beauty, beauty and um, I think I, 
some sort of divinity attachment to the divine in ritual and in like liturgy and kind of older styles of how services services can be constructed um, because I didn't grow up with that and you know I have a wife who's going to be going down the path of ordination in the Episcopal Church which is much more liturgical um, but it's like a connection to all like the liturgy and the and the rituals that they perform and the way that they do it um, is a connection to everyone that's come before you and has practiced that same ritual in that same way in that possibly in that same space and that in itself is a kind of story you know like I am continuing the story of the person who did this in the 50s or in the 1600s or you know some of the practices that we do now are still from the early church so I think it's all kind of part of the same story as long as that ritual is life-giving and you like it like do it <laughs> and then on, one more quick thing about story um, I traveled to Japan years ago and went to the um, the the bomb museum, and my baby brain is kicking in. I can't remember the name of the city or <laughs> the, but Hiroshima. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, I went. They have a huge museum there where, and you can see the building, you know, where where the bomb went off, right above it. And their whole thing is. It's the through line through the entire museum is we're not here to place blame on anyone because like we did that, we dropped that bomb. We're here to tell the stories of what happened and show you how awful nu this nuclear bomb was so that it never happens again. You know, like they, they weren't trying to make anyone feel bad because I was kind of like, ooh, I'm an American, like going to this museum. And they, they, their whole thing was like, we're not trying to make anyone feel bad. We just want you to hear these stories and see these photos and see what happened here so that that could, so it never happens again. So it's another good example of that. Anyway. Thank you. Somebody else. Oh, there you are. I just have a couple of non sequiturs. Um, I'm gonna derail the storytelling conversation. A little bit, uh, really quick. One, it occurred to me when the you threw away a line about the uh, apostles saying, let's burn that city. Yeah, which I wonder how, what parallels there were there in their Jewish minds about Sodom. You know, like burn that city, they're not hospitable. Sounds really similar. Um, I was interested to read, maybe read to something. Somebody can comment online about that. Um, the other one, I'm really irritated at how schizophrenic the Bible is because in that parable, he's like, Samaritans are great people. And in, you know, another book in Matthew or something, it's like, don't preach to the Samaritans, they're awful. You know, and it's like, even Jesus can't keep his story straight in the Bible. And it's, 
frustrating. Uh, and then the third thing um, was just, yes, uh, stories can bond, cause you to have empathy, and that's awesome. Stories can also exclude. And um, like I got in a fight with my dad a couple of days ago about uh, rituals and whether you're going to hell or not if you say the prayer and get baptized or whatever. And that's a story too, right? It's where we have this story that says you have to say this particular thing or do that certain thing because that's our culture. And there's this whole mythology around um, right behavior and right speech and right belief that is a story. It's a message that specifically excludes people. And there's like every Christian sect has that. And it's in the Bible too. Like, like I said, Jesus could be really sectarian in parts too. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I like being a counterpoint. So I guess I'm just saying that to be divisive. But it's my spiritual gift. Is, it is. It's my, it's my thing. So anyway. Sorry, I didn't mean to grab the mic from you. <laughs> just, I came over and put my hand out. You're done. No, no, I absolutely, I love everything you had to say. And I think it's important to keep in mind, uh, just, you know, you're right, that the Jesus presented in the Gospels says a lot of things. And depending on which Gospel you're reading, he can sound totally different. Like John's Jesus, you know, sounds totally different than the one we found in the other three, the so-called synoptic Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all riff on each other, right? Um, and I think it's important to remember that the Jesus that we find in the Gospels is the Jesus that the Gospel writers in some ways created. And that's okay, right? I think that's, that's okay. Um, I personally find that to be kind of cool and reminding us that everything comes to us through a lens. Everything. You know, Jesus didn't write anything down. He didn't, he didn't give us his letters, his notes. It was written down, you know, by his followers sometime later. Anyway, which again reminds us that, you know, it's all a story and that all of life is a story and that maybe our task as people of faith, especially now as post-deconstruction or post-evangelical Christians, our task is to, is to tell better stories and to find the stories that work for us maybe that still in our Christian tradition and to let go of the stories that don't and that's okay because the Bible itself is this crazy hodgepodge of stories. Some of them are liberating and life-giving and wonderful and divine, and others of them are just fucked up, let's be honest. And, and they're life-taking. They're oppressive, some of those stories. But you know what? It's a work of human hands, and it's a human attempt to understand God and the divine and to wrestle with that. And, you know, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters are so much better at seeing the Bible as, you know, something to debate and to dialogue and to wrestle with. And it's not, you know, the way we were. I was raised being told, you know, the Bible says what it says. You know, the Bible says it, or how does it say, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, something like that. You know, it's just this, this doctrine of perspicuity. The Bible is clear. A, a five-year-old can read it and understand it. This is horrible. That's not actually the way the Bible has been treated for most of time, and certainly not by our Jewish brothers and sisters who gave us the Bible. Even our, you know, the New Testament. Those were Jews writing that. That was their understanding. And they were dialoguing with each other and debating with each other. They were, they were in, a, in essence, trying to reform 
their religion of Judaism in the first century. They weren't trying to ditch it. They loved, they were, these were Jews. They never stopped being Jewish. Anyway, I'm, now I'm preaching a different sermon. Um, but Jason, see what you do to me? Uh, it's good stuff. All right. We have four minutes left. Anybody else have something they want to share? Yeah, okay, Marsha. In, in listening both about the um, museum uh, in Japan and thinking I at one time was a high school English teacher and taught debate, one of the critical things that I think we can help and, and it's within the religion, it's, it's everywhere, is to promote critical thinking because a story is great if you don't show enough viewpoints, it's one-sided with a goal in mind. And depending on the goal, it can either enhance our love of humanity or harm it. Great points. All right. Well, let's conclude our time together, as we always do, by saying this benediction, this blessing uh, together. Will you join me in this now? As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous grace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace.